Well, guys, I think we can give it one or two more minutes just for, for a couple more people to join us. And then, you know, we can start going through this topic. Um, while I do that, I think maybe it's a good time to, to introduce you all. Uh, I know a lot of you, I, I mean, I know all of you pretty well. Um, a lot of you haven't met. Paul and, and Yulia, you, you guys met last year and Alicia on, on calls. Um, Tim and I go a long way back. We, we were actually at Stellenbosch together, so we studied together. Difference is Tim actually studied, which was, which was a good call. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, we've got, yeah, well, let me start from the beginning, and I'm just going to go in alphabetical order here. Alicia Gabriel, or Dr. Alicia Gabriel, she's, a, she's an Encona team member. Um, she did her PhD in... Organic, yeah. Organic chemistry. All right. And um, yeah, so Alicia is our operations director for North America. So from, from studying chemistry, you've been in, in the automotive industry for you know, a good six or seven years now. And mm -hmm. yeah, with Encona, which is, which is great. And, and we've loved having you on board. And then another one of your, of your projects that you know, a real passion of yours is obviously the Motor City Steam Project mm -hmm. um, and getting, you know, maybe it's better if you, you tell everyone about that really briefly. Yes. Just so, so I can get some context. Yes. So I'm one of the co-founders of Motor City Steam Foundation, which is a, a nonprofit here in, in Michigan, in Detroit. And basically what we do is we go out into the community and make sure that uh, youth have access to STEAM education, so that's science, technology, engineering, the arts, and math. And uh, I'm just very passionate about that um, that aspect of learning to make sure that young people can actually get and go into careers in in automotive and aerospace and things of that sort. So even where where I am today, so it's it's a passion project of of ours. Great, thanks. Alicia. And then mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Yulia Prakopchek, we've, you know, we've worked together for, I think, what, four or five years now? Um, mm -hmm. So it's, it's been a while. We've been a licensed partner of VDAs since for, for 10 years, actually. And um, I think in, was it 2016 or 2017, you came in to run learning for VDA QMC? 2017. Okay. And you did your PhD in didactic methods, if I'm not mistaken. Right. I remember. See, I listen to some of these conversations. It's a good thing. Um, professional training, right? Correct. And that's, you kind of held and then bravely moved off into automotive. Yep. Actually, I'm used Which to... is a very... Sorry, carry on. Yeah, I actually used to work for industrial sector uh, previously before I started my job at VDA-QMC at the Federal Institute for Education Education Training. I was responsible for industrial sector as well. Okay. So it's not really a new subject at VDA-QMC. So. Yeah, fair enough. Well, thanks for joining us today. And... Um... Next on the list, we've got Dr. Paul Kostelnik. Paul and I worked on a big uh, VR project together last year, which was very exciting. Both of us were exciting for me. 
and um, did, did some really fun things in, in, in that space. Um, Paul, you did your PhD in technology and training, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I did my PhD in, um, in psycholinguistics by uh, yes, uh, looking at learning transfer, how you can manage uh, to get the best uh, learning transfer. Um, and um, yes, I did this at the LMU in Munich. And um, uh, it was for me always the, the big question how to get the best measurement on this, how to to get the best transfer measured. And um, in these times, uh, technologies as uh, VR and AR came up. Uh, the first devices have been on the market. And that was for me kind of this uh, uh, initial moment um, because with, uh, by using these, uh, for instance, uh, VR headsets, um, uh, a door opened in which you can just uh, is ensure learning transfer and um, how to, to get the best outcome of, of uh, physical and as well non-physical trainings. Okay. Okay, very interesting. And um, then you went into entrepreneurship. You know, I met you originally when you'd, I think you were one or two years into Ingman Interactive. And that I believe, you know, that got bought out. And now you're heading up XStar for Europe and Accenture. I mean, that is pretty much the journey I know uh, that we've, since I've known you. As well, yes. <laughs> so, so I'm as well. the, um, the, the XR lead for um, ASGR, so Austrian, Switzerland, Germany, and Russia. And I'm as well the, the global offering lead for uh, XR collaboration within Accenture. So um, that's uh, something we're currently covering uh, as um, yes, XR collaboration is, is heading fast forward, as you all probably know, due to COVID. So uh, we've got a couple of, um, yes, with an essential couple of different sub-offerings like um, uh, virtual design thinking workshops, virtual product presentations, virtual exhibitions, um, but as well um, immersive learning, immersive marketing, and the whole connected worker topic, um, which as well I'm responsible for. Okay, cool. Well, thank you. Thank you for the, for the introduction, and thanks for joining us. And then last but definitely not least, we have Tim Nell. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I've known Tim since, since varsity days, trying to help me out to get, get through university and pass it. Um, after university, you were one of the founders of Lobster Inc., which, which was a business you guys grew up, I mean, brought up from, from founding in, when was it, around 2008? And um, you sold it two years ago, I believe. Correct. You... So, yes, that uh, is a great journey. Yeah, it's a great journey. And, and what Lobster Inc. Uh, specialized in was initially live training in, in the most remote parts of Africa, especially in the hospitality industry. Um, but very quickly as we scaled and as the company grew, um, it was imperative for us to find a way to take our learning methodologies and the content that we were teaching uh, across the, the continent and put it into a digital platform. Uh, and, you know, over the past 14 years, that's what Lobster Inc. has specialized in, was, was really training uh, most of the world's big hospitality establishments at scale using our combination of technology and content. We did everything in-house, and it, it's the exact opposite, I would imagine, of what Paul has done. And, and um, it sounds like what, what a lot of the background here is, is in the 
in the academic side of learning and, and how you know, knowledge transfer through from a theoretical perspective taken forward. Lobster Inc.'s entire approach and methodology was done by testing things out in, in the actual uh, spaces we were working in and seeing what stuck. And I, I can say our, our, what we ended up calling our learning science was definitely not a science. Tim, we seem to have, have lost you for a second there. Okay, well, let me let me take over um, for a second while he just gets his connection back. So, you know, I know Tim, you know, Lobster Inc. grew into to quite a massive business, and I just thought it would be an interesting balance for everyone um, with this, you know, or with with the focus on XR. Uh, Yulia, with coming from industry and such a strong experience from from industry, Tim from the entrepreneurship perspective, um, Alicia from from a training perspective, but also with with the projects in Steam. All right. So while we do that, maybe we can we can start by introducing the topic. So today, delivery methods for practical learning. Okay. Um, our topic covers. It's it's a pretty broad topic, but it covers digital learning, so learning online, learning in a VR classroom, learning in any, any digital form. Uh, we're also going to touch on some of the other delivery methods like blended learning, but that's really a secondary focus. Our primary focus is which content types to use within delivery. And uh, I, I think that's, that's really what we want to discuss today. Tim, we got you back. Can you hear me now? <laughs> I'm making a plan B here. <laughs> yeah, we've got you. You're on the phone. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, so, just in a nutshell, we we ended up our platform was training uh, you know over over a million people a day uh, in 120 countries in about 23 different languages, and working with the world's biggest hospitality groups, for, uh, like Marriott International, where we were training all 800,000 of their staff in a, a wide variety of skills, from extremely basic to to management level training. And using our combination of technology and, and different content methods to see what could affect behavioral change as quickly as possible and, and make it last. And that's, that's really where we built our business. Okay. Got it. Thanks, Tim. While, while you were out of the call, I just gave a quick introduction to the topic. Um, but, you know, I think you've got that in front of you, the delivery methods for, for practical and digital learning and then focusing more on content delivery and then in a secondary sort of, in a secondary way, also a platform and, and, and delivery methods. So I'm going to open discussion around these points and questions. But, you know, as I said earlier, the first question I'm going to ask, unfortunately, is a bit of a negative one. But we've, we've all been in industry. We've all seen a lot of online learning. Unfortunately, you know, sometimes just a slideshow is put out and that's considered learning. Um, I just wanted to know from the panel, what do you consider bad online learning or what turns you off about digital learning? Maybe we could start with Alicia. Yes. So I think that there are a few things from my perspective that constitutes bad learning. Um, and, and one of the first things is kind of the instructor maybe not being or creating something or a space where learners feel comfortable 
and competent to participate. So, uh, for example, if the instructor is extremely um, or, or reading off of a presentation the entire time, uh, that's obviously not going to be very engaging for the learners and is very challenging, especially in the midst of, you know, Zoom fatigue and things of that sort. So that's definitely one thing. Um, and then I also think that it's really important to, um, uh, to make sure that um, the instructor implements various methods for discussion and collaboration. Um, a lot of times that, that may or may not be used um, during, especially, you know, in any in-person or virtual classroom, right? And so I think both of those, um, you know, those are two big things that for me are very important, right? We have to make sure that the, the instructor is engaged and that the instructor cares enough to ensure that the learners um, also become engaged and, and have a great discussion uh, around the topic that they're learning about. Absolutely. Sorry, Yulia, I think I lost you there for a second. From your side, what are your thoughts on, on, on bad online learning or what constitutes? Uh, from my perspective, a bad uh, e-learning or online training is it, it is, has a lack of practice and because uh, if it's really only theoretical. Uh, of course, it's not uh, very uh, easy or it's not easy at all to provide practical uh, competencies um, uh, via uh, online classroom or maybe a computer. But still, um, I think uh, the worst what could happen if uh, we are all in adult education, if somebody who is actually searching for more competencies development is going to be providing only theoretical knowledge. Uh, nowadays, it's somehow a no-go. And the future is in a good combination of theory and of the practice. Fair enough, um, Paul. What do you think? I mean, I, I, I'm I'm quite interested, especially you know, Tim and Paul, on your take on this because I think Tim from. From what I've seen of, of what Lops Inc. did, you spent a lot of time on, on theory and delivering, you know, theory. How did you tackle the practical side? So, um, Tim, if you don't mind, I, I start. <laughs> so, um, just just to, to, to have a review, uh, when, when I've been starting in, in this, uh, this whole ecosystem and training and learning, um, we had about uh, uh, two to three to four hours online learning courses. Um, the one block so uh, that, that the outcome and as well the transfer uh, the learning impact of these trainings have been uh, absolutely <laughs> terrible let's say and um, what we did uh, we just shortened up these learning courses up to learning nuggets we just shrink them down to two to three to five minutes maximum learning sessions um, and just scope them and sharpen them um, on, on uh, yes, smaller topics and smaller snippets. That was the first topic. Um, by coming up of, or by, by rising of these new technologies as AR and VR, um, a door opened for us to get uh, immersive training uh, on a completely different level. So by just um, not only telling 
to face-to-face uh, -to -face or, or frontal training, but uh, to engage the whole um, learners in a virtual environment to make them um, feel this experience hands-on in a virtual environment to, to get the experience to train as well, um, safety trainings, to, to, um, to learn topics in a, in a, in a high-security environment hands-on. That was something what for me was an amazing aspect. And, and uh, um, as we can see as well, uh, regarding to the transfer of, of, of these, uh, let's say, blended or immersive trainings, uh, increased massively. And I, I think yeah, I totally agree with that. I, that was certainly our findings in, in that, especially given Lost him. Yeah. Oh, you're on mute. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can yes, hear you. Again. Oh, uh, we we had a similar result, Paul, in hitting the the optimal uh, le lesson duration for us in terms of the, the hundreds of millions assessments that we analyzed was between three to five minutes if, if it was a video lesson. Uh, you know, to answer your question directly, uh, Lloyd, the, the biggest mistake that we saw was people using technology for technology's sake, and especially in, in online learning, video for video's sake. There's, there's video and then there's bad video learning. And if what you're going to do is take an existing 40-minute lecture and film yourself from the back of a lecture hall and call that video-based training, you are doing everybody a disservice. Mm -hmm. You have to think about the medium itself and format your learning in such a way that you are optimizing video. For example, if you're using a talking head with text and, and slides coming up over this, what this person is saying, you are, you are got to be very careful in terms of managing cognitive load. And if you get text which is not identical to what the person is saying, or if there's additional information coming in with that text, it doesn't add to the learning experience. It's been proven that it actually detracts from it because you, you start getting... Um, you start getting cognitive load issues where someone's trying to process the audio channel and the video channel and the two are conflicting. So you have to be very careful with using the tricks of video and, and everything that video can offer, but make sure that what you are doing is sticking, staying true to the way that the brain works in terms of behavioral science and in terms of cognitive science. Using video for video's sake and doing it wrong can actually be a detrimental learning experience, especially if you're dealing with non-first language speakers, where, where this was often the case in, in our experience. I'd just like to, to add one topic to, 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 to your thoughts, Tim, and, and that's something what I, I had a lot of experience with. Um, it, it, uh, for me, it was very impressive to see that a uh, kind of analog training concept was just uh, transferred one-to-one -one into a digital format. And uh, same, uh, same size, same length, same wording, just putting a face-to-face -face session in a, in a video session or in a, in a virtual session, that doesn't make any sense. So you have to just reinvent and rethink the whole process from scratch and building uh, actually a complete new training um, and, and setting different aspects uh, in a complete new way. And that's something what, uh, out of my point of view and out of my experience, uh, really most of, of the responsible uh, um, 
stakeholders in, in learning don't do. They want to take their old contents and just transfer them one-to-one -one in a digital environment. And that, that's not working, actually. 100% agree. And I see Yulia. I can hear you. I couldn't hear you, unfortunately. Maybe can you repeat what you just said? I couldn't hear you. Oh, I said, I, I see you nodding a lot. And <laughs> yes, yes and no, except not no. <laughs> I mean, um, I completely agree with team and uh, with Paul um, if you are speaking about a classic um, lessons. But in uh, adult education, we, always, we also use workshops. And the workshop which we provide uh, in a face-to-face -face format could be provided uh, identically in the uh, digital format as well. So maybe a little um, restructuring or something, but of course, I completely agree. We cannot uh, just... Um, make the same sequences and uh, what we done for face-to-face -face training and uh, put them in the uh, digital classroom and say, okay, it's going to work. It's a big mistake and it's never going to work. Uh, perhaps as well, one, one example to, 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 uh, to, to you, Julia. Um, we currently did create a kind of um, virtual design thinking area. Normally, we are uh, within Accenture, we are running design thinking workshops within one or two days, hands on at, at the client side, which is very intensive. Uh, you've got a lot of uh, traveling time, you've got preparing time uh, and wrap up times, etc. And right now, we started to run the same uh, design thinking workshops in a virtual environment, strapped down to uh, four 15 minute sessions. So we are meeting in VR, running, using sticky notes, using uh, whiteboards, using everything you've got in real life as well, uh, in a virtual environment. And uh, the, the interesting topic, the outcome from these virtual design thinking sessions is almost the same as the uh, on-site sessions at the customers. But it takes you four times 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, absolutely uh, mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Paul, I think, you know, on the last, the last topic or the last subtopic we, we go through here, I, I want to touch on, on this further. I want to really delve into it. Um, Tim, I wanted to ask you something. When we had our discussion when, yesterday, you mentioned to me or you started talking about learning fatigue and the concept of learning fatigue. And I, I found that pretty interesting, um, you know, because that's something we've stuck with, but I don't think we've refined the science as much as you have. You know, so switching up media types clearly keeps you engaged. It keeps you awake. It, it's fine. If you're just delivering video after video after video, it's a problem. Do you, do you want to give us a little more on that? Well, yeah, I, I think our experience showed that we started off with one media type, which was video, and, and we spent a lot of our research and our energy developing the best way to attack certain types of, of content and, and certain audience groups with video. And, and that became a specialty of ours. But pretty soon we realized that if, if video was the only tool that we had, every problem would start to resemble a nail. And we were using video for content types that weren't necessarily best suited to video. And we developed a spectrum where we, where we, on the far left, we had knowledge transfer. And on the far right, we had uh, knowledge check. And we had seven or eight different lesson types 
along that spectrum with video lessons on the far left being a very broadcast format, very knowledge heavy transfer. There's not much knowledge check from a learner unless you do it in a very interactive way. Uh, it's a very passive learning experience. Assessment was a critical part that happened all the way through our video lessons, but as a, as a content type itself, video lesson is, is knowledge transfer in the extreme. We then had to develop different ways where if I was learning a process, video is not necessarily the best format. We developed a process lesson type where I was, I was asked to make certain interactions along the way, even if the content transfer part of that lesson was video. On the far right, we had simulations as a lesson, which is closest to probably what Paul um, delivers in a VR sense, where I'm not necessarily having a, a knowledge transfer to me. I'm being asked to demonstrate my knowledge by making decisions or executing on a task. And as we, as we expanded the list of, of uh, lesson types and, and started to learn which ones worked best for, for the certain uh, learning objectives that we developed, we saw that video itself, even if used exclusively for the content that was best suited to video, if we daisy chained five or six videos in a row, we saw less success in the assessments that followed. And we started to use variety of lesson types as a tool to increase the dopamine spikes, to, to increase interest and to keep uh, the user's attention for longer. If, if that segment of, of learning required, um, you know, an extensive period of time before they, they completed that particular module. So it is, it is good to, to increase the variety of lesson types to increase, um, to increase user engagement as opposed to just picking the right tool for the right job. Finding that balance is, is a really important part of, of extending the learning experience for you when, when you have a lot of knowledge to transfer for a particular learning outcome. Okay. Thanks. I mean, that, that kind of sums it up pretty well. And, and that really leads us into our next, our next section, which is um, an online course is a combination of different elements as you've just. What do you think this combination of media is for online learning? Direct this at Alicia and just Asking, I mean, I know maybe you don't have as much experience with online learning, but you have a lot of experience with learning and a fair amount with online learning. But what I'm really interested in here is you, you know, your job is, is adult education and vocational training, but your passion project is, is school, school, school level learners. Do you think there's a different set of medias that you need to deliver for those different groups or what is your thoughts on that? So I, I actually think that in, in both cases, uh, there are things that you have to consider, um, you know, of course, in terms of the content, the, deliver the delivery of the content, right? Um, so for the adult learners, um, at least what I've, what I've seen, and I mean, um, and I'm not sure if, if, um, if I've even stated this before, but I, I have taught on the collegiate level, and um, I have done... Um, or, and conducted online workshops with the with students uh, specifically in chemistry, right? And how do you uh, communicate certain concepts and certain things to to learners who have never seen chemistry, or maybe they don't remember it from their their high school 
um, their high school ages and high school classes, that can be very difficult, right? So I think there's, yeah. there's, a, there's, a, there's a piece there that needs to be discussed, and that is really this combination of uh, synchronous and asynchronous learning, right? So making sure that um, the instructor, if, if I'm the instructor, I'm heavily engaging with my students, um, no matter the age, right? So even in the adult learner case, that, that's very important, right? So I talked about that earlier. Um, but then also too, I think a lot of the same kind of uh, uh, tactics and media can be used for, for, both, for both ages. Um, you know, if, if you need to illustrate things using video, I think that's very important. And then having um, kind of, uh, we, we talked a little bit about learning nuggets, right? So having some kind of explanation about that video. Um, I also think that it's important to, um, to make sure that we have or show some kind of uh, um, project, right? So in, if we're talking about chemistry or we're even talking about, for example, um, FMEA, failure modes and effects analysis, right? It's easier to do those kinds of things when you're concentrating on inquiry or project-based types of learning to incorporate for both adults and also uh, school-aged learners. And also even practical uh, case studies, right? So making sure that you're applying real topics to um, things that are going on in the world, right, to what you're actually teaching. And I think that those those few things, and, and among others, right, I, I can even include yeah. gamification. Yeah. You know, I know uh, Paul and Tim, you guys have talked about AR and, and those kinds of things and VR. Um, I think those things are, are are also important as well. But I think there are similar things or similar media that you can bring to, to both adult and, and young learners as well. Okay. Okay. Thanks. That was, that was, yeah, interesting. And, and I, the penny actually just dropped that. Yulia, weren't you a school teacher before you did your PhD for a while? Yes. 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 So I, then I'm going to have to direct the same question at you. <laughs> I would say that uh, there is, I mean, it depends of learning target group. It depends of intercultural competencies. It depends of culture itself. I used to work in Belarus and in Russia, and uh, I had a chance to uh, meet a lot of people from different surroundings and how do they learn. So I would say that there is uh, a big difference, not big difference, but there is a difference between uh, learning um, in ways to like young people or students learn and adults. I would say that adults learn best uh, when they can practice what they learn. Uh, and to be considered um, effective training must include practice um, segments from my um, perspective. Good training material should be structured according uh, to this and should be created as a practical uh, reference uh, guide which could be um, accessible at any time at any place. It was my experience what I've done actually with um, uh, adults uh, during uh, my uh, um, training sessions with uh, experts from industry, for example. And it's, it was a little bit different uh, uh, in, a, in a school, um, it's, uh, as I said. Uh, the expectations are different, and one important thing is actually uh, in adult or in a adult education or in a training uh, 
business it's a rule of a trainer Okay. Paul, you look like you look like you have some thoughts to add there. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Thanks, Lord. I see your eyes lighting up. Yeah. No, it, just just uh, taking up the, the last topic Julia mentioned. So I, I, I did uh, one of the, the major outcomes out of my, my PhD thesis was uh, that uh, it's it's uh, on the one side very very um, the, the content transfer. Is related to to the, the trainer or, or the um, the teacher, in fact. So if the the teacher got uh, good capabilities to to uh, yes transfer knowledge, uh, knowledge transfer is, is, is on on the best way. So that a uh, couple of years ago, to be honest. <laughs> but um, uh, what what I want to to uh, uh, point out here as well is that. Um, the uh, the learning method right now in schools uh, actually uh, and and I'm talking from from a German point of view uh, might be uh, of the world it's it's pretty different um, but um, uh, actually the the curriculum in Germany is used uh, is still based in the 1980s so um, the The teachers get uh, their their studies uh, on on a base which is over 40 years old, and and that's something we definitely uh, should should <laughs> think about and and redefine and rethink from scratch. So uh, it, it's 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 more or less an institutional change. So we have to to to, to change the whole system per se because. Um, Uh, as you all know, uh, going in school, starting at uh, seven in the morning, uh, leaving at one um, or in the afternoon, uh, this this is not anymore uh, the state of art. Because if you're looking at our kids, they don't have the the tendency uh, uh, bandwidth to to get this whole <laughs> time covered because they are living more or less in a, in a virtual world. Generation Y, Generation Z is is is, is working with uh, uh, immersive technologies uh, as natives, and and we have to think out of their point of view to create um, learnings, and and that's as well something that's not only related to schools but as well to 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 uh, to companies because these Generation Z, uh, Generation X, etc. These colleagues, these are colleagues as well, and they want to learn as well in a new environment. And we have to think how we can uh, do handholding with them, and how we can bring them in these new learning environments, and how we can create these learning environments for them, out of their point of view. Okay, fair enough. I mean, that's yeah. Carry on, Julia. Sorry. Yeah, I agree, Paul. But maybe one thing, or my one thought from my side, uh, I think in all the discussions about new methods and didactics and everything, um, teachers and uh, scientists uh, forgot one thing. I mean, we by we I mean people. We run still uh, with the same software. It's our brain. We exchanges clump uh, via uh, mobile phone, but still, uh, how we learn, we read, we hear, uh, we see something, then we um, memorize or we forgot, and then we reproduce. And in this chain, nothing changed actually. 
it was for ages the same like it is right now. It's uh, our, uh, it's psychologically actually evidence-based uh, facts. But we use different um, speed for uh, collecting the knowledge. We use different medium uh, to achieve uh, the knowledge or to develop the competencies and so on and so forth. That is really important to remember. And it's important to remember to adapt, to adapt the methods, to adapt the methodology uh, to the actual demands outside uh, of uh, young people or adults in the education. Yeah, totally agree, Julia, totally, yeah. Julia, do you think that, and just a question from my side, but do you think that, for example, kids, well, these days, I mean, cell phones all the time, tablets, it, it has to somehow reprogram the structure of your brain to an extent, those neurological pathways, or do you think that the impact of that is minimal? I think, um, I would say I cannot measure uh, how big or less is the impact, but one is clear, there is an impact, for sure. Uh, but... Um, um, I think um, important is to uh, to maybe to search or to to do, think about for what for which competencies or kind of competencies could uh, this ability be used uh, uh, if in at schools, for example. And of course, uh, nowadays uh, young people without uh, any phone, it's uh, cannot imagine. Everyone has uh, their cell phone and uh, iPad or I don't know what. Uh, but to have the iPhone or to have an iPad, it doesn't mean that they use it for learning and how to, to use it in the correct way oh. for learning and so on and so forth. That is important uh, what I mean by method, provide the correct techniques to use these. But also not every competence or block of competencies can be um, provided for um, uh, via uh, digital, uh, for example, uh, uh, way or format. For me, for example, a big lack of e-learning is um, social competencies. You cannot provide social competencies via computer. It's not possible. And human beings, they are social beings, and it's important, this interaction, face-to-face -face interaction as well. So that is what actually, from my uh, perspective, the big uh, disadvantage of uh, e-learning, to be honest. Yeah, I, I agree with that oh, point. I disagree. Okay, <laughs> 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 hey, Paul, one, one last okay. chance to, to, <laughs> to strike back. Sorry, Julia, I have to add just one topic. <laughs> And, and, and I agree with you just regarding, um, uh, let's say, tablets or, or, or cellular phones. In, in this context, it's, it's definitely 100% um, on your page. Uh, if you're looking at, for instance, uh, a virtual environment, if you're using uh, uh, virtual headsets, you can definitely train as well these social competencies in, in, in an in a environment, and you can, you can train um, how to behave in a, in a certain way by interacting with as well um, artificial intelligence, by as well interact in virtual environments with um, uh, self-learning avatars. So that's, that's at this point of time already possible. And that's what we're currently as well are doing. Mm -hmm. Partly agree. <laughs> uh, maybe so for... just to correct myself, we have uh, still a lack of social interaction in uh, uh, e-learning. 
Okay, that's a that's a fair statement, Paul. I, I think you know where I stand on on your comment and the topics, but I want to play devil's advocate on that in a second. But I wanted to address a question to Tim, just sort of following on from this. Um, Tim, you, you built a business around almost pure um, online learning, right? And and your business model was very much around pure online learning. Now, I believe, obviously, there's an ideal state. Just hang on a sec. I'm not sure why I'm doubled in there. Okay. Um, obviously, there's an ideal state where you are able to, you know, you could give your client whatever they want, but they're also economic constraints, right? And those are, those are real factors. Um, why did you sort of go with pure e-learning in, in the context of what Julia and Paul have just said? I, I think that's, that's true to a certain extent, Lloyd, but we, we built our business as a live training business face-to-face. -face. That's where we started before we had to make the yeah, digital yeah, transition. Yeah. Uh, and so we still firmly believe that there are content types and there's massive benefits to in-person training, especially for, uh, especially for higher-end skills, you know, uh, management level, these sorts of things where nuance is important, where communication in a face-to-face -face environment, where understanding your team, et cetera, are absolutely vital. What we tried to do as Lobster with the digital online component was to make sure that we were finding the most efficient way to do the knowledge transfer part of the learning experience and assessing that in such a way that we could reliably report on results in terms of the learner's completion or their competence, their ability to understand or execute on process. The goal with that was not to get rid of live training, but was to empower managers at the hotel level or at the restaurant level to understand the audience level, understand what people knew in terms of the, the foundational learning they required, and then to adapt face-to-face -face learning to add that nuance, to add that contextualization, which was so important. We spent a lot of our energy on our online courses training managers on how to do better live training sessions. So it's not that we don't believe in that medium at all. We just wanted to say, we will take care of the knowledge transfer component. We will assess it in a consistent way. And we will teach you on how to use that fantastic foundation to add nuance, to add detail, to add context, which will bring this content in line, whether you're in Chicago, whether you're in Doha, whether you're in um, you know, Cape Town. Uh, the, the, the knowledge that these, these individuals have learned needs to be applied to a very specific context. And that we believe was best done in person. Uh, but we wanted to take care of everything else in a reliable and consistent way. And, and training is such an expensive thing to do. It's so expensive at scale for a company like Marriott, 800,000 people. They calculated, for example, that a front desk supervisor time to competence was 250 hours of training before they were ready to, to operate as a, a fully functional front desk supervisor. That was done by webinars, by flying people in, by long PowerPoint sessions that someone had pre-recorded, et cetera, et cetera. We proved that we could reduce the time to competence by 60%. Now, across the entire audience of Marriott, in the first year of us working with them, we saved them $100 million. Well, that was a calculation that they made. Just by reducing the, the broadcast level knowledge transfer by using the medium the right way to, you know, a 40 minute uh, webinar, we reduced to about two five minute or two six minute lessons in terms, of, uh, in terms of content transfer. Someone might watch that same lesson twice if they didn't grasp it, but that's up to them. That's, that's the individualization, which is so powerful in e-learning. Mm -hmm. 
Now, you know, to, to, to really answer your question, we believe there is a critical part for, for in face, face-to-face interaction, a critical part for, for virtual reality, for AR, for very specific skills. That is the best uh, tool for the job. What, what we don't like to see is companies trying to say that VR will solve every problem or that live training will solve every problem. If you come into this with an open mind and you say there are 52 different tools that we can use in terms of what we have right now, let's find out what the objectives are. Let's understand our audience extremely well, and let's use the right tool for the right job, understanding the human limits of cognitive load and being really respectful of that. Uh, then yeah. I think you're best placed to, to produce content, which really works. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Look, and I, I completely actually agree with you on that point. Um, uh, yeah, there are so many different content types and using the right one in the right place is a more effective and, and be often more cost effective for the client too. Okay. Um, sorry, sorry, like just to add one. Oh, one. Go ahead. Sure. And, and at the end of the day, it's, it's just, it's a business case. You have got to decide what costs you as a company to create a certain uh, curriculum or to create certain content and what is the outcome of it. And if the, the best outcome is to use a, a virtual reality training, which costs more than to produce some videos, um, you just have to, to, to figure out what, what is uh, more effective for the company. Sorry, Lloyd. No, absolutely. Um, no problem. It's a good point. Should we, just having a little look at the time here, but move on to the next one, um, which I think is, is really quite, a, quite an important question too. And I want to uh, use something that, that Julia said earlier, but I'll, I'll ask this. But when, when engaging learners remotely, so this is the opposite of that negative question in the beginning, and the, and the positive one is, what constitutes good learning and why? Um, what is your, is your dream course and, and why when you think of online learning? We've all done online courses. We've all worked with them. Um, so maybe we could, just, we could just go around the panel, um, starting with Alicia again, and, and just kind of tell us what, what your dream course would be and, and for what reason. You know, just kind of thinking about my experience about, you know, really good learning experiences, either in person or uh, virtual. Um, I, I think it all, I think the one of the main things that, that comes to mind is, you know, just kind of being excited about um, the, the, the learning uh, environment that we're in, right? So, um, for example, if, if you, you kind of need to meet the students where they are almost initially. Um, as soon as they get onto the platform or as soon as they come into the classroom, you need to be able to kind of build um, some type of connection with them uh, as an instructor. And I think that's that's a really key first piece in order for everything else in that learning experience to be considered good, right? Because now you've built a rapport with them. You have some, um, some things that, that they, they can relate to and you can relate to them. And I think that's kind of a, a really, really important piece. Um, and, you know, of course, reading off of a presentation, like I said earlier, that's, that's not going to work in, class, uh, in a live session um, in person or virtually. So that's not going to work. And I really think, too, that good learning also consists of 
this collaboration piece, right? So when you have, um, I know a lot of people may not necessarily like group work or, or things of that sort, but the thing is, is that, um, you know, the research shows that collaborative learning and making sure that you talk to your, your, um, your classmates about their experiences and being able to apply those, those are things that really help you learn, right? So your, their experience can help you and, and vice versa. Um, and then also too, um, I think sometimes, uh, and, and this is something that, that we've done uh, in the STEAM organization, right? So testing a concept in a large group is usually not effective, right? So let's say you have a really good idea about something you want to try out. It's important to maybe consider using a smaller focus group to test out some of those concepts, right? So let's say you have an, let's say you want to do a particular project um, with, uh, uh, with a group of students and, you know, this project may be, uh, it, it just may take, you know, uh, a very long time to complete as an example, right? Um, doing that with a smaller group, a smaller focus group will help you kind of see what that looks like at scale with larger groups, right? So we've even uh, uh, worked with, uh, young people as large as 70, uh, 70 young people on a Zoom trying to learn scientific concepts, right? Um, and I think, you know, being able or trying to adjust, learning to adjust something that on that smaller scale and then being able to scale that up, that's really important as well. So I, I think there is something to be said about using that smaller group and then scaling that up. So those are just a few things that I think constitute good learning. And I, I really think that it's important for you to use that environment, you know, use, use the people there, you build that rapport with the people there first to kind of get their attention and, and feel and help them to feel comfortable in that learning environment and in that space so that you can uh, continue with, with learning the concepts that you want to instruct. Okay. Okay, great, thanks. And Yulia, from, from your perspective, what do you feel, you know, your, your perfect course is or perfect arrangement of content and, and what makes it effective? Mm -hmm. for, for me, uh, or from my perspective, the, actually I have for me just a formula with two words. It is a great flexibility and variety. A great flexibility, it meant that I can uh, do it whenever I want to do and on the place, it doesn't matter which, where I am in my workplace, at home, or in the holidays, uh, if you wish. And okay. the variety, variety of different uh, methods, variety of different medium, variety of different uh, conversations, because you can use actually, you can, you can um, provide in digital environment everything and uh, uh, tandem uh, communications or communication in small groups and everything. So. These are, for me, the two important uh, characteristics for a really good e-learning. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. And Tim, from your side, what, what are your thoughts? I love, I love what Yulia has said there. I think the perfect course for me is down to a few different things. Um, the first is personalized. This is where technology can be so powerful. We saw that the quickest way to lose someone's attention in terms of drop off on a particular lesson was to teach them something they already know. <laughs> so if we can uh, make sure that we're using technology to diagnose what you do and don't know, and we are tailoring the course to fit your needs, that's personalizing it for me. 
which is vital. The flexibility that you spoke to, Yulia, allow me to control my pace. If I don't get this, let me rewatch that in my, in my time. If this is too slow for me, let me skip ahead. It's the biggest problem with in-person training where invariably the lecturer or the, or the trainer is teaching to the medium, which is you're going to lose some people on the fast and the slow end. A critical third point is practical application. The perfect course for me tells me immediately and repeatedly why this is important for what I need to do. It links it to my reality. This is not some hypothetical context teaching me something that I will never need in my job. You've lost me already. Uh, and show me why it's important for me to learn this and for me to imply, uh, apply this. And the last one is entertain me. I'm a human. I'm not an avatar on the other end of a screen that has no life. I have emotions. I like to laugh. Those emotions help me to retain knowledge. They help me to motivate myself. So remember that I am a human and I'm not just a, a, an unknown robotic user on the other end. We have so much opportunity with the mediums that we use to entertain people. And, and if we forget that, we are not going to inspire them to, to keep going with the course. Right. I think that's a, it's a pretty good, unique point. I think Paul's, Paul's obviously got a, a slightly different kind of perfect course. What are your, what are your thoughts, Paul? No, I, I totally agree to, to the topics Tim mentioned, so uh, perfect. I just wanted to add two more topics. The first mm. one, I want to get rid of all of these PowerPoints in my perfect course. <laughs> <laughs> PowerPoint is really pain for me. And uh, even though I'm, I'm working at Accenture, uh, that's something what I'm currently changing. So. I'm, I'm about to get rid of these nasty PowerPoint slide decks. I can't see them anymore. <laughs> so that's the first topic. <laughs> um, the second topic, it's, it's pretty similar to what, what Tim mentioned as well. Um, the more interactive, the more hands-on you can put and get in a learning session. So just uh, get uh, the, the learners attracted, get them internally intrinsic motivated by using what they need, what solves their daily problems, not in a long term, but in the short term. Okay. Without PowerPoint. <laughs> no PowerPoint. Look, I actually need to give you a call after this and set up a presentation with you. Yes, please, send me some decks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, in, in all of this, and just want to bring something back from, from the last question we had, and something you touched on, Yulia, that was, that was quite interesting, um, was you, you said culturally relevant content types. So you've often spoken about learning types, um, and now you're talking about culturally relevant training types. Um, well, doing everything multiple times. Um, can you not? Can you not hear me? Is this right better? now, yes, but before it was uh, kind of dark. Okay, I'll just start again. Luckily, I like talking, so it helps. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, well, you were talking about culturally relevant training types, um, and you know, to me, it's looking at at saying something like, right, we have, you know, if we're using training in different cultures, we need to adapt that training. And I think you touched on this from one side, Tim kind of touched on it from another, is, you know, where's the practical line in the middle between 
you know, producing six different lessons for the same, for the same lesson to be culturally sensitive. Um, and do you know of technology or ideas? Like for, for me, often is a good technology to use. Uh, but, but the question really is, how would you, you know, how would you envision using culturally relevant content and, and delivering it for people and each person has a different learning type? How, how, how does that look to you? I mean, the technical point of view, I would just pass to Paul maybe later. I, uh, I have no idea how I can use uh, solve this uh, challenge uh, um, via technique. But uh, what I mean is that people in the United States, in Europe, let's say, or in Asia, they learn differently. That's the fact. So, um, but there is enough of uh, service which actually provide us uh, enough of uh, evidence-based facts uh, how uh, people learn in those countries or in those cultures and which actually, and we should, if we de develop training, we uh, cannot just ignore this kind uh, of uh, facts and data. We have to use it if we're gonna if we have this ambition to provide uh, a training or to develop a training which is going to be uh, to find access to the world. Of course, let's say, for example, our bestseller is today 6.3 process for digital. And uh, we provided the same training in the whole world. So in somehow, of course, it runs really well, but still I do not believe that um, the... Um, success of learning uh, in, in Germany is the same like it is, for example, in our, in our office in uh, China, because uh, uh, they learn differently. Uh, we have the discussion right now with our China office about uh, e-learning as well, that, for example, they, uh, some, in some cultures, people still prefer to communicate directly. It's not a must but uh, there are some target groups that they say, okay, even in Germany, even in Germany, we do not going to have the access to everybody with the e-learning. It is still a concept of the future. And um, interesting uh, experience we collect right now within the pandemic time, we just were expecting that people are going to wait for e-learning or the demand is going to be, um, is going to increase. But uh, um, right now, we do not actually have this kind of experience, and um, because, for example, in Germany, uh, and we still, or I still speak about adult education, uh, people prefer to learn in a traditional way. Uh, I've done some researches, uh, for example, because I wanted to remove completely all the printed learning materials, and I was really excited about this fact that we are going just to provided uh, um, in a digital way. And the most of our participants and trainees, they wanted to have steel, they wanted to have a printed material. I was shocked. So you can discuss a lot about what is actually, uh, from our perspective, important, but still we are not allowed to uh, completely forget about the opinion of industry. And uh, this is really important uh, just to collect enough of facts and data and information about different cultures, how do they learn, what they prefer, which are the successes if they learn in which in different ways, and just to use it as the basics for develop, developing a training. Okay. Okay. That's a pretty fair answer. Um, 
Tim, I think you, you, as you mentioned in the beginning, you did a lot of training through Africa. And if there's one continent with a lot of different cultures on, it's, it's here. Um, how did you get around that? You know, just expanding on what Yulia said in terms of, you know, different cultures do learn. I think I, I might have uh, lost Lloyd there, but I, I think I get where he was going. Certainly, the um, certainly the, it was a, a challenge, and and you know we were producing video content uh, and and media content in in variety of different formats at an extremely uh, high rate, and and constantly when we were thinking about um, the production and who we were including in the video footage and language and and you know. The, the the pace of the narrator what what uh is it a female narrator is it a african narrator is it a british narrator what, what cultural and um, non-cultural effects does all of the or do all of these decisions have when you're dealing with a piece of media content uh we when we knew that a piece a piece of content or something had to apply to a, a wide range of cultures and and uh, do that in a responsible way rather than trying to produce nine different versions of something to make sure that no one was offended or, or that we, we ticked all the boxes, what we always recommended to our clients who were always paying for the production of this content um, was that we include perhaps a lesson towards the start of the course that spoke to cultural variations, that spoke to the differences in context that you might see this, you know, a guest might react in a certain way or you might learn, um, you, you might have to, change your behavior in a certain way to, to adapt to your context, to at least set, the, set the, the scene for the fact that culture is being acknowledged here as part of this course, and we understand the complexities that come with it. We, we never operated under the assumption that people learn in different ways across different countries. Uh, of course, there is truth in that. You know, we were dealing with video, and take, for example, the way that it works in Hollywood. People in the Western world typically read left to right. And it's long been a, a uh, you know, a Hollywood stereo, a Hollywood way of working that the good guy will enter in from the left-hand side. It's jarring if the, if the good guy comes in from the right, it's, it's against what we used to. And that's one of many different things in film science that you have to take into account. If you want to create the feeling of intimidation, you put the camera below somebody so that you're looking up to this intimidating character. In the Far East, it's a completely different thing. If you want to show, um, if you want to show respect for somebody, you would be looking from below upwards. And, and these are big generalizations. People read from right to left in, in different parts of the world. So, so the same things don't apply. Um, so if, if you try to take all of that into account, uh, unless you have a very specific target group that you're producing the content for, I believe it would, it would be prohibitively expensive and you might be per, yeah. paralysis by analysis. Um, if you know who you're targeting it for, absolutely do the research and, and understand the best way to reach that audience and do it in a culturally responsible way. Uh, we couldn't unfortunately do that at scale um, unless the client specifically directed us in that direction. Yeah, I'd like to add to that. Um, just being here in the U.S., of course, we have many different cultures and, and experiences here. And, and I think that in, in my experience, what I've seen is that you, you, there, there are nuances that you have to have, and it's easier to do, of course, um, not a, on a smaller scale, right? So, uh, 
you, Tim, you mentioned, you know, doing it small on a smaller scale is definitely, um, definitely more feasible and, and more doable. But at the end of the day, what we've seen and what I've seen is that it is important to consider those, um, those differences in, in culture. And um, especially when we're working with uh, young people, right? So if I'm, if I'm instructing young people, they definitely um, are more attracted to things that they may have seen, you know, on social media, on TikTok and things like that. And, and you do, it is, it is critical, I think, in, in those instances, to make sure that those things, the, the topics that you're learning are more, are culturally relevant for them. Otherwise, again, they don't have that application, they're not able to see and connect those, those topics to them. Okay. Yeah, that's a pretty, pretty fair point. I think, you know, Detroit especially is as a city, it's, it's very, very culturally diverse. Very for interesting. Sure. For sure. For sure. And all of those things have to be considered, right? Um, you know, um, even when we talk about, uh, and, and I, I saw that there was a, a question in the Q&A about, you know, ec being, things being equitable, right? How do we address learning being equitable? Um, um, those, all of that, even here in the U.S., is also sometimes culturally relevant, right? Because it, it seems that if you're from an underrepresented uh, minority group or underrepresented group in, in STEM or STEAM, then you don't have the equitable pieces that you need to actually be successful and put yourself in those places where you can learn in the best ways that that we've all been discussing, right? So I think, I think um, all of that's important. Um, and, you know, maybe we can talk about that a little bit later, but I did, you know, of course, Detroit, it, it's a very interesting dynamic here. And, and we do have to take those things into account when we talk about learning online. And, and Deirdre, just to, I mean, sorry, Alicia, just to answer or add to that Deirdre's question, my, my answer to it takes one aspect of, you know, being equitable and inclusive, and that is providing mm -hmm. access. That was right. the biggest challenge that we had. A lot of technologies were designed uh, for a very first world experience. And we had to mm -hmm. deal with the most remote parts of the world, sometimes in, in a large part dealing with people who had never completed a, any level of formal education, who had never accessed a computer. Mm -hmm. Often the first time someone in our environment had worked with a computer was in a lobster ink learning experience. Mm -hmm. So that access is what I speak to in my answer there, but there's far more in terms of inclusivity, in terms of representing the, the cultural realities that people work with and, and not having 100% white actors in, in an environment where that's not reality, which can often be the case. Or, you know, working in the Far East um, and, and pretending that, you know, Western actors d delivering the services and the skills is going to, is going to resonate. It cannot. And it's, it depends how, how much... Uh, and it's the responsibility of, of both the companies who are using this content and, and, and the companies who are developing it to make sure that they are being inclusive and relevant in these spaces, because not, not only because it's the right thing to do, but also because it's more effective. Absolutely. I 100% agree with that. 100%. Okay, brilliant. As I think we're, we're almost at question time, and I, I see there have been quite a few questions popping up in the chat. I might ask one of my team to access those, or in a second, just, just ask the participants to stick up their hand. Um, but we have one final kind of question. And, you know, I'm not going to read out the whole of the fourth question, but I, I'm going to come back to something that's quite important. Proximity. 
Uh, online learning removes proximity. We, we touched on this in the beginning, and Paul, you've used quite a few VR examples. Um, but this has always been a concern with online learning. You know, how do you capture attention? How do you keep attention? In a classroom, that's, that's pretty easy to do. Um, but from an online perspective, it, it becomes very difficult. Um, so I think I'll start with you, Paul, because you did touch on this earlier. Um, VR, VR interaction, I think everyone's quite aware of, but will we ever have blended learning that is not, that's in a virtual classroom in your opinion? Um, and what do you think the future of training looks like where we can create proximity, you know, micro, micro movements in the face, micro expressions, um, versus what we have right now, which isn't quite there. Um, so uh, there are a couple of approaches we, we can we can mention here. So uh, the, the proximity topic, if, if you're just looking at VR trainings, for instance, um, is is uh, pretty easy to handle because you're you're just moving in a virtual space. You've got spatial audio, which which as well shows you if somebody is near to you or somewhere uh, in behind. You can you can separate rooms by by using this this technology. So that's pretty easy. Um, mm -hmm. What I'm as well um, uh, want to mention is um, to get. Uh, I, I, I would not recommend to run an eight hours learning session in VR. So that definitely wouldn't work. So um, my approach is as well to run uh, blended learning. So you have to to. As, as mentioned uh, before, you have to select which kind of medium you want to use to transport which kind of knowledge. And if, it, if you, for, for instance, uh, want to run some uh, kind of technical trainings, uh, VR is very, very helpful. AR is as well very helpful to, to, to run, for example, a training by using the Microsoft HoloLens. And you've got something hands-on you can manipulate, you can, you can just show, you can explode parts, or, or you can, you can um, yeah. um, redeploy them. Um, but but uh, in general, I think uh, the, the, the mix of, of methods is uh, what, what needs to be considered. So you just have to define which um, use case is uh, shown up best in, in, in which technology. And okay. to, to come back to the topic proximity, um, you've got this as well. So um, it's, it's pretty um, difficult in these times to get face-to-face uh, -face trainings uh, managed because of uh, COVID. Um, but, but for, let's say, for a midterm or long-term, um, it's out of my point of view as well, uh, um, something uh, you would need to have because of uh, socializing. So um, it's, it's just uh, as well one part which, which uh, needs to be included in a, in a training um, as well. It's just the, the, the bandwidth is just widening up. So you've got more media and more kind of tools uh, you can rely on. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, yeah, and delivery, delivery is an interesting thing, but interaction is really, in, in my opinion or my experience, often being on webinars, interaction gets lost somewhere along the way. That's, I mean, we've, we've got a, you've got a good webinar. You, you've got interesting conversation. You've got something that's going, but keep this going four or five hours 
um, or three or four days into, into an event and you, you start losing people in a big way. They just have fatigue. Um, Yulia, from, from your experience, you know, training over this period, have you been able to, to keep people captured in a screen or do you think there's some future that looks a little different? Um, it is a big challenge, I would say. For me to provide face-to-face -face training is much more easier as to provide the training uh, in the virtual world. Uh, and uh, and then I just want to mention what I mentioned before about the uh, trainer rule. And I mean, the rule of a trainer is quite well established by now. And when you ask a trainer a question, what do you do as a trainer, then he or she will tell you about presenting and providing the new knowledge, with practicing, practice examples, moderating discussions, being an expert and sharing uh, her or his experience and etc. And such understanding of trainer's competence become obsolete from my perspective. There is nothing wrong with this understanding of a trainer's role, but new training methods, new technologies, new ways of developing competencies and new, experience, uh, new expectations of trainees create the gap between what is... Um, perceived as a good set of trainers' competencies and what is demanded by the market. And uh, of course, every trainer is free to deliver uh, the training based on traditional rules and responsibilities because of uh, diversity of trainees, uh, which uh, we mentioned before, but uh, every modern trainer should be ready to take, um, let's say, the rule of companion. And uh, um, it is really a big challenge for the trainers. It is really a big one. And of course, uh, to capture the attention, to uh, hold them um, active all the time, it's, I mean, it's, it's not easy. And uh, my solution is just to, um, to make a lot of uh, pauses to uh, give the possibility uh, to, um, I don't know, to stand up, to, uh, to go around the table, to come back and to discuss a lot, just to move, to move because they move in the traditional classroom. And it's really, it's really important somehow to, uh, to, um, yeah, to provide this kind uh, of techniques or this kind of pauses because I mean, uh, even uh, for me to sit uh, one, two hours uh, on a computer is uh, not that easy. And uh, to, <laughs> to do this all the time and with really one important thing, to learn something, not just to hear, to remember, and then to transfer the knowledge into the practice. And that is the big challenge. And if we have assessments after, so it's... It, it's um, um, it's really uh, uh, difficult. Um, so, but um, somehow it's going to be a future, and we have to find uh, some. Uh, uh, as Paul uh, said, uh, we have to find some the correct media for the correct uh, content, and uh, try to provide it in a uh, in a good mixture of uh, different methods. And one point what I would like to mention that there is no king's way because every teacher wants to have this uh, recipe how to solve one problem or how to deliver a great training so there is no king's way but somehow uh, every trainer or instructor should try something new with uh, different groups 
because the groups um, the group I have today is uh, not uh, the same uh, like I'm going to have uh, tomorrow. So it's uh, just to yeah. let's say invent the training uh, from the zero every day. Yeah, yeah, no, agreed. I think reading reading a class and reading a group and getting those nuances and keeping them interesting and it, as Tim said earlier, entertained. I, I know from our side, that's a major, major factor and challenge. And that's hard enough in, in person, but virtually becomes a giant challenge. Uh, I've always sort of been of the opinion or noticed that to teach theory via e-learning is is great. We're there. The technology is there to be able to bring across um, theory and knowledge, to really transfer knowledge. But interaction, I think we're still building. I think we're still building. Um, Alicia, what, you know, you or, or Tim, do you have any thoughts to add on this topic? Yeah, I, I think to to add to kind of what you're saying, um, I really think it all comes down to the instructor, simply in a few words, being curious about the class, right? Being curious about who's in the room with them. And, um, and, and when we talk about that curiosity, it, that is, that comes back to my original points about, you know, building rapport with, with the, with the class uh, at the beginning, right? So that could be, um, something as simple as doing a, 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 you know, conducting polls at the beginning, right? So how are you guys feeling? Um, um, you know, what, what, you know, here's a, a pop quiz all of a sudden, right? Um, calling on students individually, right? So, um, you know, all of those different things, I think, are, are really important. And um, really just helping the students feel comfortable in that space because it, it's, it's absolutely critical. So like I said, the instructor just has to be curious about the, the people in the room. Okay. Okay. Brilliant. Well, guys, um, Tim, I don't know if you've got anything to add, but we're, we're sort of heading into the last five minutes of this webinar. And uh, I just wanted to see if there was anyone else who wanted to ask any question or questions to the panelists at this stage. See, we have one hand. Mm -hmm. Ah, Jörg, give me one second. I think Taryn can activate you. Go ahead. I got, yeah, guys, can you hear me? Yes, hi. Okay, cool, hi. Uh, a pleasure to meet you guys. Um, one of the things I want to ask you, because it was a really um, one and a half hour interesting meeting, to be honest, and without PowerPoint. Uh, so it was a good thing, to be honest. I agree <laughs> with all you said. <laughs> I agree with everything you said. But maybe, just a quick one, guys. My father was a teacher, and he was a good teacher. And he, uh, the guys were happy, the learners were happy. But um, one thing he mentioned in the past was one of the most efficient things was he teach. Um, the class, but in the afternoon, there was some kind of mini classes. So a group of three or four or five and the cleverest one uh, um, tried to teach the other ones. You know what I mean? So it mm -hmm. was only the learners in, in a mini group. What's your thoughts on that? Just let me know. I would be really impressed. May I do first? <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. 
I, I, I really uh, love this idea, and that's currently what, what, we, what we are doing um, to set up for, for instance, uh, development and Scrum teams. So we've got one experienced colleague who is just spreading his knowledge to the less experienced or more junior colleagues. And that's actually the same topic by running this knowledge transfer in, in, uh, in classes. So you've got uh, uh, one, one experienced uh, trainee in there, and you just delegate to him um, uh, to train or, or to, to bring uh, the others up to speed. And, and that's definitely a, a very appropriate uh, uh, approach. Yeah. If I Thanks, Paul. That, I, think, uh, I, I, I saw the sum. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Jörg, I think you answered why the reason that your father was such a uh, successful teacher, because even to set that environment up for the learners is, is groundbreaking and, and innovative. I, there is absolutely no doubt that people uh, learn better and, um, and perform better in terms of demonstrating their knowledge when judged by the jury of their peers. <laughs> When it becomes, when people concentrate harder, they will work harder for longer, uh, trying to impress their peers than trying to impress their, their lecturer or their teacher. And, and we've seen that in, in practical uh, environments and in practical executions where we enabled peer-on-peer -peer practical assessment as opposed to uh, peer-on-manager. On uh, so absolutely the case and, and the more the learning environment can encourage that. And I think VR is another excellent uh, execution for this creating a, a VR environments for people to interact with their peers as opposed to being directed by their lecturer. I think you're onto a winning, a, a winning uh, tactic. That's my one-year-old. That's not my, I'm not that hungry. <laughs> <laughs> you're allowed okay, to be hungry, Tim. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, it's, uh, it's, it, thanks, thanks, Tim. Uh, Julia, did you have a quick comment? Uh, yes, actually in our uh, train the trainer, I even provide uh, or uh, advise our trainers to do this. I always say if you have somebody in the class who is, who is really has strong knowledge or competences in one field, it's perfect, it's great, mm -hmm. include them in the learning process. You, you can mm -hmm. only as a trainer uh, have a big profit. Just do it and delegate to these uh, people, and uh, then it is. It makes the um, training even more interactive, and uh, it is um, somehow um, a really uh, great experience for the whole group, including the trainer. Got you. So I think we're all in agreement on this one that that's quite a good way to go. Guys, I think maybe we have time for one more quick question before we have to call it a day. Um, can we get... Natasha, you should be able to... Uh, we should hear you now. Hi there. Uh, it's Tess speaking. Um, thank you very much for the, the session. It's really been very informative and a lot of information that you've given. Um, one of the points that you actually touched on was that it's really important to work with um, the team that's actually putting the training program together to understand the audience that you're working with. And there's so many different sensitive topics out there and considerations need to be in play. What I would be interested in is um, one of the um, passions that I have is um, working with members in industry that have disabilities, um, especially disabilities in and around um, mental in the re regards to maybe dyslexia 
or um, you know other reading difficulties, especially uh -huh. in countries that are third world, um, where reading and interpretation of the screen and that. I was interested in how you actually went about it in um, taking that into consideration, what lessons you learned, and um, you know how how you could share that insight and that knowledge with the the rest of the audience when they're actually putting programs together. Thanks. Okay. Um, I think that's a pretty good, fair question. I'm not sure who wants to field that one. Uh, Alicia, you smiled first, so I, I think we've <laughs> got to leave that one to you. Okay. So um, I know for, for us, um, and especially the work that, that I mentioned, uh, doing the work in the community, um, particularly with inner city Detroit youth, um, there tends to be a, a several um, challenges that we might see. Um, from accessibility. So, um, and, and like you said, there might be some other disability and things of that sort. But one of the things that um, is really important for us is that one, we even consider it, right? So lo looking into methods that, that work best and using evidence-based uh, practices to, to help those things. Um, uh, even, even with some of the, um, the activities and things that we do, uh, we want to make sure that everyone has the ability to understand it. So, for example, we know that um, in some cases, some students, even if they're in the same um, grade level or same age range, um, they may not necessarily understand things in comparison to other counterparts who may have had um, tons of experience. They may have had summer programs. They may have had all these other things. And so how do we balance or what do we do to make sure that, that that's balanced? And so um, in a lot of ways, what we do is we work with um, different community organizations where we try to ensure that young those young people who may not have had all of that exposure, that they get some additional exposure so that now we create that balance. Um, so that's just one way that, that I know has worked for us. But I mean, even in terms of, um, you know, what, what are differentiated learning techniques, right? So if we, if I go back to my example about being the instructor and making sure that I understand uh, the, the room, um, and, I, you know, I understand the, the, the young people that are in the room, I have also have to understand that everyone is going to learn differently. And uh, with that being said, some students may need, you know, more visuals, some students may need um, more, uh, they, they like to read, or maybe they like to use their, their hands and, and have more um, textile based learning activities. And I think that's all about trying to, you know, kind of using those ideas um, and, and again, just being curious about the young people that are in the room. So that's my perspective. That's also, you know, kind of been my experience. It, it's it just trying to kind of assess the room and, and use those, you know, making sure that you understand that making sure that we understand differentiated learning techniques are really important for everyone to get that information. Okay, great. Thank you, Alicia. Um, does anyone else have, have any comments to add? On that one, I think right now. All right, Tez, I hope that that kind of gave you some insight and some ideas. That was perfect. Thank you. Great. Well, guys, that's right on time. So I just want to thank everyone for coming. For so all of my panelists for giving of your time. Thanks so much, Paul, Yulia, Alicia, Tim. Really appreciate it. Um, it was a really interesting discussion. I, I really enjoyed that. And thanks to all the participants that have, that have joined here and the guys live streaming um, on Facebook. I, I really 
appreciate all of your time and, and, and hopefully this has been informative or as informative for you as it has for me. Um, great. Yeah. So we will meet again soon. I think we need to do this again for sure. <laughs> oh yeah. It was a pleasure. It was great. Yeah. It was Thank great. You all. Bye. Thanks guys. All right. Talk Thank soon. you all. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank Bye. you so much. Bye. Bye-bye.